As we begin our study today in Revelation 18, I want to read four statements, and I'd like for you to think about what they have in common. So four statements, what do they have in common? First statement, we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America in great Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. Do you know what that is? It's the Declaration of Independence. Next one. By virtue of the power and for the purpose aforesaid, I do now order and declare that all person held as slaves within said designated states and parts of states are and henceforth shall be free. Emancipation Proclamation. We, the jury, in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty. That's simply a jury statement. And finally, by the power vested in me by the state of Indiana and by God, I declare you husband and wife. You may kiss the bride, that's in there too, right? So, <laughs> That's a marriage pronouncement. So each of these are declarations. They're pronouncements that then have an effect. That's the connection. And I want you to think about those declarations with me for a moment. The Declaration of Independence, Emancipation Proclamation, a jury verdict, the proclamation of marriage. At one level, they're all just words, right? And yet, there's so much more. In fact, I've often thought of that, having the privilege of officiating many weddings. A man and a woman walk into a sanctuary single, and by virtue of the words that they say and the words that I say, they walk out in covenant. It's amazing. Declarations matter. But let me help you just with one cultural point. Do all declarations matter? They do when there's a right authority behind them. But they only work if you have the authority to make them. That's part of the challenge with the age in which we live. We have declarations based upon no actual authority. For instance, the redefinition of marriage is a declaration founded on a fatal flaw, that marriage somehow could be something else other than a man and a woman in holy matrimony. Or at the core of the confusion related to gender identity and sexuality is the issue, and this is really important, as to who has the authority to define who you are and what is moral. And what's happened in our present culture is it's taken the individual and made that individual, it's made me the center of the defining of both my identity and who I am. Which means, in effect, that everyone is doing what is right in his or her own eyes. And that's frightening, why? Because whenever the created removes our identity from the creator, we get in big trouble. Or that move is essentially the essence of sin. To define myself by myself, irrespective of how God defines me, 
Romans 1 says they worshiped the creature more than the creator. Now, how does this relate to Revelation 18? Well, here's how. The entire chapter is a declaration from God. It's a statement. Fallen is Babylon. It shows us what God sees, and it shows us what God says. It shows us what is God's perspective about Babylon, and what you're going to see is God's perspective about Babylon is so different than everyone else's perspective about Babylon. And so what really matters, and what you're gonna see today is what really matters is what God sees. What really matters is what God says. Because declarations don't matter unless you have authority behind them. They're just words, unless you have God-given authority. So today in this text, what I want you to think about with me is this question. Can you celebrate what God sees and says about you? Can you celebrate what God sees and what he says about you? In other words, what has God declared to be true and what does that mean? So today we're we're gonna look at Revelation 18 two ways. One, looking at the declaration that God makes and then secondly, seeing the effect, and then I wanna draw some conclusions or applications related to the two most important declarations that God could make over your life. So we're gonna see how all of this fits together. First, let's look at this declaration in the first eight verses. This is another judgment-oriented text. It's still heavy, but this chapter is designed to be more instructive. Once again, we see an angel, verse one, another angel. Previous angels have pronounced divine judgment or been the carriers of divine judgment. This angel merely declares it. Notice that the angel comes down from heaven and he has what? Great authority. There it is. The declaration is connected to the authority that he's been given. In contrast to the fake authority of the beast, we have this angel who's full of authority and the brightness of his glory fills the earth. He calls out in verse two with a mighty voice. Here's the point, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. In case you're joining us for the first time or maybe a reminder would be helpful, Babylon is not just the city of Babylon, it's a metaphor, it's a type for not just the spiritually rebellious city of Babylon, but all spiritually rebellious cities, and for that matter, even beyond the city, since Babylon was founded, where the Tower of Babel was built, and where the nation of Babylon was constructed, there's this connection between the spirit of Babylon and an anti-God, anti-Christ, idolatry mindset. We see this in Isaiah 21 and verse nine. Behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, fallen, fallen is Babylon and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. Notice the connection between Babylon and carved images. Babylon and idolatry are linked together. It's, It's more than a city, it's the spirit of rebellion. Which is why in verse two we also see this description that she is a haunt for every unclean spirit and unclean bird and unclean and detestable beast. So you need to understand that 
the concept of Babylon is that it's demonic and rotten and destructive at its core. And this ideology that's implicit in this metaphor seduces the world. Look at verse three. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her passion of her sexual immorality. The kings of the earth have committed immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Remember, this metaphor extends even to the themes of drunkenness and immorality. It doesn't have just drunkenness and sexual immorality in mind. It's a statement, a metaphor about the systemic presence of evil. Commentator Grant Osborne says this, applying it to Rome. Rome seduced the nations due to her incredible wealth and the luxurious living it purchased. This bound them to Rome securely by far more than armies could, for wealth brought them into the Roman fold willingly. In other words, there's two ways to conquer people. You can either conquer them by military might or you can conquer them by commercial enterprise such that your life is dependent upon the entity preserving your ability to maintain your standard of living. Don't miss that. You can conquer people by military might, but you can also conquer them by making them dependent upon you in order for their livelihood to remain. So the seduction isn't just moral or spiritual, it's financial. And we need to see this, that commercial might is extremely powerful. It's powerful in our own day, in our own culture. What's more, it's true historically that conflicts, wars, and the mistreatment of people are often connected to money. So Babylon isn't just about religion. Babylon isn't just about military might. Listen, Babylon is about the monetization of idolatry. It's the normal warfare when wars aren't being waged in your land. We'll see a lot more about this in the verses to come, but it's interesting, there's a call for this, a call for God's people to wake up. Verse four, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. There's a call here for God's people to be distinguished, to be different than the spirit of Babylon. They're to separate themselves from the moral rot that exists. It's a call for people to not succumb to the gravitational pull of their society, in particular, the gravitational pull of their society as it relates to the monetization of their idolatry. This is why Christian Generosity is really important. And not just as it relates to your church, as it relates to your ability to clearly demonstrate, I have severed the tie of the monetization of idolatry in my life. I give money away as a sure sign and as a statement to my own soul that money doesn't control me. Watch me, I give it away, I give it away, I give it away, I give it away. Probably you, like me, got a notice from your tax preparer. It's time. Gather all those annoying documents together and pay your fair share of taxes. 
One little thing that you might want to consider, assignment maybe, is while you're looking at your taxes, consider what your contributions have been charitably and ask yourself, what does this say about the monetization of idolatry in my life? You might say, well, I give a lot of money away that isn't deductible. Awesome, praise God. Ask the same question. Because if there's an assault on our souls, the back door for most of us is going to come through this historic means of the spirit of Antichrist where we become seduced by the financial realities of what it means to live in what's arguably the wealthiest nation ever known to mankind. Verse five, Babylon's bad, it's a bad place. It says her sins are heaped high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. The idea is that judgment is coming, pay her back as she herself has been paid back and repay her double for her deeds, a mix, a double portion for her in the cup she mixed as she glorified herself, verse seven, and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. And what happens is judgment is swift. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. The point is this contrast between this prideful, arrogant posture of Babylon, and she's judged instantly. Her fall is immediate. All the proud pronouncements of glory and grandeur are silenced. Trust in military might is shattered. The security of financial systems collapse. It will be a stunning upheaval of what human beings put our trust in. I remember feeling this. When we moved here in 2008, the whole nation was under the midst of a massive housing crisis. You remember this? If you do the research on the housing crisis, you'll see that implicit in the housing crisis was massive greed. And I lived in a world where I was told growing up and thought that when you buy a house, the value only goes up. I never realized that, no, there's actually times that housing values can plummet. In 2008, it felt like a foundational principle in life had been violated, and the fact of the matter was, it hadn't, I just was naive. Or what did we learn through 2020 and COVID? A little virus can shut the whole world down. Wow. The point is, mighty is the Lord God, that's the point. And the caution is for human beings to live in Babylon and experience all of the benefits of societies and things that humans build and all this confidence. You look on your money and it says, secured by the FDIC. Well, that's awesome as long as the American government is still around. It feels a little bit sometimes like we're playing the game Jenga. You know the game? You build the little blocks up and you pull out a little block and you kind of wait and next person goes, next person goes, next person goes. And then finally that last block gets pulled and the force of gravity unseen before but very real suddenly takes over. Can I just remind you that human life is a lot like a Jenga puzzle. 
And in Revelation 18, we see the final block pulled out. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Can I just remind you, church, when God says it's over, it's over. Secondly, the effect. The rest of this chapter highlights, so what does this all look like? And just so we get the point, so we could feel it, like really feel it, John sees this vision with color and context. And it's intended here to draw us into thinking and understanding about what is taking place. Look at verse nine. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. So we have four groups. The first group is the kings of the earth. Notice they will stand off in fear of her torment. So the kings of the earth are like, hey, we're all into Babylon. And then when Babylon gets judged, they're like, whoa, hey, we weren't so involved with Babylon. They stand a little far off. And they're shocked. In a single hour, your judgment has come. Next group, merchants of the earth, they weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Notice, again, the commercialization, the monetization that's happening here. And notice the self-interest of their mourning, of their weeping. They're, They're upset, not because divine judgment has come, but because their business tanked. And just to make that really clear, did you hear all of the articles let me look at verses 12 through 13. Let's read them again. Gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine wheat, wheat, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves that it's human souls. Why that specificity? Because the Bible wants it to be very clear how real world this is. Lest you stand back and go, man, that's too bad it's like that. What's up with Babylon? Uh Now this text is meant to get in your grill, in your world, right now, as a warning. Merchants of the wares are next. Look at verse 15. The ones who gain wealth from her, they will stand off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls, for a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. They grieve because the thing they trusted in has been blown apart. It's over. Shipmasters and sailors are in the next group. Verse 17b all whose trade is on the sea. They stood afar off. Why, why shipmasters and sailors? Because the shipping industry over the sea was effective for trade between nations. It's the logistical link between Rome and the, other, the rest of the known world. In the same way that all kinds of logistics in our society, in our culture, link nations together for the purpose of trade. And yet, it's over. So why is all this happening here? Well, look what follows. Look at verse 20. Here's a little bit of an interlude. 
Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Here's an interlude of celebration of divine justice, and it sets up again the contrast between earth's perspective and heaven's perspective. The people on earth who are connected to Babylon aren't rejoicing over her demise, but heaven is rejoicing. And while the world is mourning over Babylon's collapse, God's people are saying, finally, it's over. They are relieved. The oppression, the wickedness, the sins that have piled up, the way that God's people have felt like exiles, always going against the grain, always having to think about how I'm not going this direction, I'm going this direction, how different they felt from the rest of the world, the hardship and the persecution that, they, they, that was sent their way, the shedding of blood because they wouldn't go along with the party line and the societal mindset, all the things that they've suffered, finally, that whole system has collapsed and God's people are saying, finally, finally, Take note that the effect of God's declaration is not the same everywhere. If your life is so tied to the system of Babylon, then its demise is a disaster. You don't wanna live anymore. But if your life is connected to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you have a really different view about the collapse of Babylon. And this is really important. It's one of the reasons this is in the Bible. Do you know why? Let me make it clear. Because church, when the world and its system starts to fall apart, most people in the world are gonna panic, they're gonna be fearful, they're going to mourn. The world as they know it is collapsing. And yet, Christians, who live for another kingdom realize that the loss of this kingdom means the entrance of another kingdom and that's the kingdom they really long for and while they mourn its departure, they can't wait because he's coming, Jesus is coming, here it is, the kingdom of, the, of his Lord and of his Christ and that kingdom's gonna reign forever and ever. But when earthly kingdoms totter, that's when it really matters what kingdom you really live for. No wonder John said this in 1 John chapter two, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But all that is in the world, here it comes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world, and the world is passing away along with its desires, and whoever does the will of God abides forever. So, so, so the caution is be careful that you're not investing your life and your energy and your money and your emotions and your affections and your worship in a system that is passing away. It's one Jenga piece pull away from complete collapse. It doesn't mean that I've purchase 30 acres in northern Montana. We're gonna all run up there together and hide. It's gonna be amazing. We'll call ourselves the first church of preppers, whatever you want. <laughs> Doesn't mean that. What it does mean though, is for us to realize where we live and who our king is and what kingdom is really important 
And how would you know if that's really true? This book is designed to help you get a clear vision, to ask ourselves, what does God see? What does he say? And to be sure you're on the same program as God is as it relates to what he says and what he sees. Because that makes all the difference in the world in what you hear when God makes his declaration. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. If you love Babylon, you're like, oh no! My money, my life. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. No, 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 I was planning on that. That's, that was my everything. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. My king is coming. I didn't live for this world anyways. I'm not heading for the hills, but I'm not going to get my heart wrapped around this system. Instead, instead I'm gonna set my mind on things above and not on things of the earth. This chapter then concludes with another metaphor, the throwing of a millstone into the sea, verse 21. The, the image is of a symbol that sinks to the bottom of the sea so that it is no more. And did you hear that? In the scripture recitation, the music is no more. Verse 22, it's over. The, the working of people is no more. It's over, verse 22. The light is no more. It's over, verse 23. Weddings are no more. It's over. And the problem, according to verse 23 and 24, is the deception that the whole world has embraced. He says, your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. Sorcery, merchants, what? Yeah. The monetization of idolatry, that's what he's talking about. It's what Babylon did. It didn't conquer people with military might alone. It seduced them with financial incentives to be pagans and to go along with worshiping the antichrist's agenda. That's the idea. Verse 24, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who were slain on the earth. It's over. And here we find that the fall of Babylon brings to end the long, hard battle with evil in the world. And this declaration, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, has the effect of triumph for those who know Christ and who would hear this declaration as good news. So here's the question, and this, this relates to the application. Is this good news to you? Is this good news? I hope it is. It's good news to those over whom two declarations have been made. And what I want to do is make two applications as it relates to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. If you're listening to this sermon, please come back next week. It gets even more hopeful, not even more hopeful, it gets hopeful. This is, I guess this is kind of hopeful. It gets, <laughs> it's chapter 19, just come back, that's what I mean. <laughs> Here are pronouncements, declarations that have an effect, but here's the great thing. Can I remind you, 
They result in forgiveness, and they result in mercy, and they result in grace. Here's the first one. Conversion. It's a declaration with effect. The moment when a human being understands that I'm a sinner and that Jesus Christ is my only hope for forgiveness, when I believe that Jesus really is the Son of God and I confess with my mouth, a divine declaration happens. It sounds like this in Romans 10. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what's the next word? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So declaring with your mouth and believing in your heart has an effect. It's a declaration. It means you're saved. But here's the thing, you're not saved because you made that declaration on your own authority. The only reason that you're saved is because that declaration is rooted in the promise of God and the promise of God is if you confess with your mouth that the Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That declaration matters. Why? Because then you are a child of God who has been forgiven. And your affections are now set for another kingdom. You can live in Babylon. You can have a great job. You can make lots of money and have your heart not tied to it. You can be salt and light in the world. It doesn't mean run for the hills. It means know who your king is because your declaration has been I believe that Jesus is my Savior and Lord and God raised him from the dead and my heart and my life and my eternity are rooted in who he is and what God has said about me because of him. Second declaration, the declaration of justification. Another declaration with an effect. Here, this declaration is legal. It's the divine clearing of guilt by the application of Jesus's death and resurrection. So to be justified means God declares you to be not only forgiven, but he declares you to be righteous. It's not just that you haven't sinned. It is that God declares you to have perfectly kept the law. Even though you and God know I haven't. To be justified means a judicial pronouncement upon you based upon the finished work of Christ. Listen to Romans 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, what God declares over you because of the work of Christ, it's more true about you than you even know. And the reason it's true about you is not because of you. It's true about you because God is the one who said it. 
And listen to me, when God declares you righteous, nobody can declare you unrighteous. You can't, the devil can't, your eternal home in heaven, your adoption in Christ, your ability to rest firmly in the finished work of Jesus, that confidence is rooted not in what you did, it's rooted in what God says about those who put their trust in him. So the promise of God, the assurance of who he is, and the authority of the creator of the universe is the basis upon which our hope is built. You need to see this declaration for what it is. In Revelation 18, the declaration, it's over as it relates to the world and its system. But there's another declaration with another statement of it's over. It doesn't relate to the world system, it relates to your guilt. And in Christ, God declares to those who trust in Jesus, your guilt, it's over. Amen. And the effect is rejoicing that it's over. So think of Revelation 18 like somebody storms the castle of Babylon and removes the flag of the spirit of the Antichrist and stands on the top of that castle and hoists the flag of the redemption of Jesus Christ and begins waving the flag. There's a new king, there's a new authority, there's a new realm. The old system is gone, a new king has come. And where does this lead? It leads us to Revelation 19. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. And Christians wave the flag of the redemption that they have in Christ. A declaration, it's over, is a statement of hope when you're united to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would untangle the affections of our hearts from the world in which we live, even right now. Oh, how easy it is to slide into the spirit of Babylon, a whole Jenga-like system that one day is going to collapse. And we thank you that our confidence, our hope, our trust is in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We know that's true, but some of us need that reorientation today. We need to be reminded both who you are and who we are. We thank you that our forgiveness and the mercy and grace that comes to us is based upon your work, your activity. Our assurance rests in your ability to keep your promises. And that's worthy of our trust. So even now, remind us of this coming kingdom. Remind us of our king. Set our affections, oh Lord, right now. Help us to raise the flag. My king is Jesus. 
and help us to think about ourselves and celebrate the way that you see us and what you say about us because of the finished work of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, our King's name. All God's people said together, amen.